Well, I'm in over my head, no one told me. Trying to keep my footprint small was harder than I thought it could be. I'm in over my head, what do I really need? Trying to save the planet, oh, will someone please save me? Trying to save the planet, oh, will someone please save me? Welcome to In Over My Head. I'm Michael Bartz. My guest today is Dr. Eric Miller. Professor Miller is the director of the University of Toronto Transportation Research Institute, where his research focuses on the areas of transportation modeling and sustainable urban design. Dr. Miller is also the research director of the Data Management Group, as well as the founding research director of the Travel Modeling Group. He's a recipient of the 2009 ITE Wilbur S. Smith Distinguished Educator Award, inaugural winner of the University of British Columbia Margolese National Design for Living Award, and the 2018 International Association of Travel Behavior Research Lifetime Achievement Award. Welcome to In Over My Head, Professor Miller. Uh, Thank you for having me, Michael. So with the majority of Canadians living in urban centres, I want to talk to you about how we get around our cities and how sustainable transportation fits into that equation. Your research involves modelling the behaviour of individual actors within the urban system, as well as the overall system behaviour. So to start, tell me a bit about people's travel behaviours in the city of Toronto. Well, uh, travel in the city of Toronto, the Toronto region, probably the primary characteristic is that it's very dependent upon the automobile. And this is characteristic of certainly all cities in North America and, you know, to a fair extent, cities everywhere. In particular, we've built our cities, particularly since World War II, around the automobile. Uh, The whole post-World War II suburban sprawl is predicated on the availability of the automobile. So we're very dependent on the auto. The city of Toronto likes to think of itself as a transit city. We do have a very extensive transit network, both the, the Toronto Transit Commission and the Go Rail system and so forth. In the regions around Toronto, we have other local transit agency. And for travel into and out of the the Toronto downtown, transit is extremely important. Uh, A vast majority of trips, not just for work and not just during the peak period, into and out of the downtown are by transit. So transit is very important to us. But as soon as you move away from the downtown, the dependency on transit drops dramatically within the city and drops even further once we get outside the city. You know, and then there's also walking and bicycle trips and so forth. And walking certainly plays a major role within the the Toronto downtown itself. It's very walkable. But again, as soon as we get out of very walkable neighborhoods, walking and biking are much less important uh, given the current urban form. So if we want to start talking about sustainability, we really have to talk about the automobile. You know, and the automobile currently still is fossil fuel dependent. It burns usually gasoline, sometimes diesel. So uh, if by sustainability we're really talking about greenhouse gases and climate change, it fundamentally has to do with the role of the automobile and how we can perhaps decarbonize the system. But sustainability, I think, is broader than just greenhouse gases, uh, as important as that is. It also has to do with consumption of land. It has to do with social sustainability of people being able to get around uh, if they can't have access to a car. So the car is really fundamental to almost everything we want to talk about in terms of travel behavior and how uh, whatever our sustainability goals are, they kind of go through the automobile. All right. So let's maybe talk a little bit more about the other ways that people get around in within cities. 
Okay, yes. So uh, transit, obviously, is an extremely important mode of travel. Big cities like Toronto, Vancouver, Montreal, New York, <laughs> London, Singapore, can't really exist without a transit system. The sorts of densities, particularly we have in downtown areas, are just not supportable. We can't build enough roads to carry the people. So public transit has much higher capacity, much better capability of carrying people. And because it's much easier to electrify, for example, from an environmental sustainability point of view, it's, it's usually much better. The challenge with public transit is that we really have to have constructed the city in terms of the urban form, in terms of population, employment distributions and densities and other activities, you know, stores and whatever, in a way that supports public transit. By what I mean by that is we have to have organized things at high enough density that we can generate enough demand for transit that can justify the very significant investments required to provide transit. You know, subways, uh, streetcar lines, even buses are, are very expensive to provide. The operating costs are high. So so while it's a means of mass transportation, in order to get those efficiencies, we have to be operating at a significant scale, and that costs money. And we also have to be providing the service that is attractive to the user. So that means high frequencies of service. You don't want to be waiting an hour for the bus to show up. It also means connectivity in terms of the network that we're connecting places where people are to where they want to go, homes to workplaces to stores and so forth. And that's a real challenge because conventional transit runs typically on fixed routes along a subway line or along a bus route, and people have to get to and from that network. So, you know, the automobile provides essentially door-to-door -door travel, whereas in transit, people have to walk to the bus stop and walk from the subway station. And so to be able to really provide coverage, building that network is, as I said, an expensive proposition. And we really have to be designing our urban form around transit stations, around transit corridors, to create, as I say, sort of that density of travel demand that makes transit cost effective. Otherwise, we can spend a lot of money on transit and still provide a lousy service. And, you know, in most suburban areas, we see that these days. You know, there's a bus running around. It's not very frequent. It's not a very good service. The only people taking it are ones who really have no choice. And the problem is it's this, this problem between demand and supply. We can't get the mix we want. So one of the big challenges in both transportation and urban design is how do we get into a win-win where we, we have a land use that's supportive of transit, you know, and transit, and then we can build transit that will attract other people and other development into that area. So we want to create that positive feedback. The other significant way we get around is by walking and biking. You know, and a similar comments really hold there. In order for people to walk for a trip, the neighborhood has to be walkable. You have to have sidewalks. It has to be safe. It should be attractive and interesting. There should be destinations. So again, if there's no place to walk to, even if it's a safe sidewalk, you're not going to go there because there's no place to go. So again, you need this conscious urban design combination and integrated approach to transportation and what we call land use, how we build the city in order to really promote these activities. So again, we see a lot of walking going on in downtown Toronto, you know, out in suburban areas. We don't see much walking because first of all, it's not very attractive to do and there's no place to walk to. Yeah. And that, and that makes sense with your work with behavior and just that if it's easy to do then people are more likely to do it. And with your example of the car, 
There's also perhaps the status symbol and owning a car and, like you said, the flexibility of being able to go where you want to, when you want to. And then, yeah, I think that a lot of the reason that people don't take public transportation is because it's perhaps less convenient or, like you said, it goes to the places they don't want to go or the times they that aren't convenient for them. So that's really interesting. And, and so overall, how is the City of Toronto doing in that regard as far as public transportation? Not well enough, I would say. I mean, it's kind of a mixed bag if we compare... Toronto to many other cities, particularly U.S. cities, we've historically done fairly well. I mean, we love to complain about the TTC, but it it actually does provide a a pretty good service. We have a pretty good commuter rail service to to get in out of the downtown. But given the size of the city and the rate at which we've been growing and the travel needs of people, we have seriously underinvested in transit, particularly good higher order transit where it makes sense that would have impact over the years. Uh, Any resident in the Toronto regions knows what a political football transit has become over the decade. And we've really had paralysis, I think, in terms of good transit planning, but particularly even have good plans translating them into actual implementation. One of the reasons we see a lot of auto congestion and a lot of complaints about, you know, the congestion on the roadways is that we simply haven't built enough transit. And so the alternative's not there. If you put good quality transit service in a place where it makes sense, i.e. it connects people, uh, it, it actually resonates with their travel patterns, you know, people will use transit compared to European cities, compared to Asian cities, Hong Kong, Shanghai, Tokyo, you know, we're not where we need to be. Even if you look at many of the big South American cities, Caracas, Buenos Aires, Santiago, uh, many, many of the, the big South American cities have done a much better job of building significant transit infrastructure to help move people around. And, and do you think that comes from a place of necessity? Or are they doing that intentionally? Again, we're talking about the environment, or is it more about just, it's more cost effective? What do you think that the, what, what are these cities doing? Yeah, I think in, in, in most cases, it is a, in a sense of necessity. If you take a South American city, for example, the income distribution is somewhat different than here. The car ownership level isn't nearly as high. And yet they're big cities, they have to move people around. So again, mass transit, uh, public transit is really the only way that the city can function economically and socially uh, at all. So they've, they've recognized the importance of public transit as fundamental to you know what they're trying to accomplish in the city. And I wouldn't say it's not a political question, because I think transportation is always political. There seems to be a more rational, shall we say, approach to this. We need to do this. Let's do it. And, uh, and, and they, they invest in it in a serious way. Here, we've turned transit into this sort of ideological political football of you know left wing versus right wing, one party versus another party. A mayor comes in and reverses the previous mayor's plans. We really haven't been very rational or logical in terms of how we're trying to build something for the common good. I think possibly we also suffer in Canada because cities are, as they say, creatures of the province. Constitutionally, the federal government has almost no role, historically at least, in urban transportation, particularly transit. So you don't have the possibility of sort of more neutral federal uh, intervention and, and federal funding for these things. We, we occasionally get money from the feds, but even that's kind of a 
you know, a political handout. Whereas I, I think there's a, in many countries, there's a tighter connection between the municipality and the federal state uh, or the national state than the recognition that the cities are very important to the to the state and, and that there needs to be support for these things. You know, and we see we see this, for example, in many European cities, uh, Germany, for example, the German cities have fantastic transit systems compared to Canadian systems. And that represents, you know, very significant state and federal interventions to fund these systems. Yeah, and that makes sense because the costs would be so large and yeah, you can't necessarily do it alone as a city, depending on the size of your city. So yeah, tell me more about Germany. So do you think that they would be comparable to us? I know they're, they're a, I mean, they're a larger European country, but as far as the way that things are designed... Well, yeah, well, I mean, I do think that German cities are, are very interesting. They're similar in some respects, uh, different in others, obviously. If we take Berlin versus Toronto or Munich versus Toronto, Toronto's a little bit larger than both of those. Um, they, But they're, you know, they're both kind of cosmopolitan world cities. And they, they do exist, you know, Germany has a federal governance system, you know, they have states within the federal government. But uh, for one reason or another, they've, they've taken transit much, much, much more seriously. I don't know that being devastated by a world war is, is necessarily a good thing, but, you know, all the German cities have essentially been rebuilt since World War II, and maybe that gave them a chance to, to reboot a bit. But I think, again, there's just been a consensus there that public transit is a very significant investment. You have to take it seriously. I mean, I think the hallmark of German, and I would say European cities in general, is a very hierarchical transit network where you have, uh, at the very high end, the S-Bahns, the commuter rail, what we, you know, equivalent of Go Rail. Uh, then you have the U-Bahns, which are the, you know, the, the metros, the subways, and then you have uh, trams and streetcars uh, and then buses. And, and these are all, you know, all these different levels of technology of capacity and speed and so forth are designed as an integrated network. So, so you know, I talked about, uh, you know, needing sort of a door-to-door solution where you almost have that in a place like Berlin and Munich. You can walk out and catch the local bus that maybe takes you to the tram, that takes you to the U-Bahn or the S-Bahn, and then at the other end, you do it the other way around. You have an integrated fare system, an integrated schedule. So you have a much more seamless uh, solution that's matching technology and demand at, at all levels in the hierarchy. You know, we have vestiges of that here. You know, we have the local bus, we have the streetcar, we have the TT subway, we have the commuter rail, but they're not nearly as well integrated, particularly at the regional level as we see in Europe. I mean, the TTC does a pretty good job of integrating its own service between the buses and the subway and the streetcars, but uh, there's, there's you know more we could be doing there. Yeah, and that, I mean, to me, that sounds really exciting in, in the, uh, the way that a city could be designed to, to get around efficiently. And, and from what I'm hearing, probably also environmentally more sustainably. Here in Canada, we just rely so much on the car because of, of the way our cities are designed. And, and I appreciate you commenting on, on why that is. I do want to touch more on, on the environmental side. So your part of your work involves analyzing the environmental sustainability of urban transportation systems. Uh, tell me more about that. Yeah, well, that's kind of... I would I would say these days that's more implicit in my own personal work. Uh, my focus tends to be on building the simulation models to pr- to predict the travel behavior uh, in the first instance, and then how that translates into 
performance on the roadway, speeds, congestion levels, etc. That's sort of the precursor to then looking at thing, modeling things like pollution and greenhouse gas emissions. And one of my colleagues, and actually a former student of mine, Professor Marianne Hatsapulu, is our primary air pollution and greenhouse gas modeler. So, so we sort of are a bit of a tag team. I, I model the travel behavior and system performance, and then we kind of hand off um, you know the outputs from that model into her pollution and greenhouse gas emissions models uh, that which which she's an expert in. So I think the work I do is certainly motivated by needing the analytical tools to look at options for improving sustainability. But then, you know, we have this larger team that's actually looking at quantification of some of those impacts. Mm, okay. Maybe I should be talking to her then. Well, yeah. I mean, I think she's incredibly articulate about this. So I think you would enjoy uh, a conversation with her, and I'm sure she'd be happy to talk to you. We, I mean, I would say a bit of a plug for the University of Toronto. She's part of a, a very large environmental team. I mean, in addition to modeling, she also does field measurements. She has students on bicycles, you know, going, going around gathering air pollution data in the streets and putting out stationary monitors to get information about the actual pollution levels on the street. Uh, she has a colleague and chemical engineering here, Professor Greg Evans, who similarly does that. He's, he's got a van that goes around taking pollution measurements and that's you know, the basis for, for modeling. He's particularly interested in aerosols and you know, particulate matter, you know, carbon and this sort of thing. All these people work together to measure pollution, model it so that we can ask what if questions, what if we change something. The public health side, they're very interested in linking the pollution particularly to, um, you know, to health impacts and trying to actually establish those causal linkages. Okay. Wow, yeah. There's obviously a a big team involved. Um, So we've talked a bit about some of the challenges to designing a city. So when you have the plans and implementations and also just funding. In your Cities as Complex Systems course, you cover the challenges to sustainable design. So tell me about some of the challenges that we haven't discussed. That course is all about trying to teach the students to think in systems terms, to try to step back from events and look at, well, what is the system? How does the system work? What are its components? What are its ostensible goals? You know, every system is built for a purpose. What is the system actually doing? Because many particularly complicated or complex systems uh, were maybe built to do one thing, but th- there may be all sorts of unintended consequences. Like we don't build a transportation system to generate greenhouse gases, but you know, <laughs> a, a big result is greenhouse gases and accidents and pollution, you know, and and so forth. So I think part of systems thinking is, first of all, to understand the system so that you can start diagnosing what we sometimes call system traps. Where are we getting trapped in our behavior through, through various parts of the system to generate these maybe unwanted outcomes? And then you have to ask the question, okay, if we think we understand this, what are the leverage points? Where can we actually intervene in the system so they will have impact? It will actually change things because, again, in a complicated system. You may intervene with a policy, but if you don't understand how the system actually works, uh, your policy may not be effective. It may even be counterproductive. It may may make things worse rather than better. And I think the big thing in a system and why these is complicated and complex and, and it's often difficult to intervene is because the key characteristic of any system, and certainly a city or a transportation system, is that it's a massive set of feedback loops. Information is flowing through the system, and one action generates another action that generates another action, but also information is flowing through the system about what's going on, and and that's actually how we control a system, is by monitoring it and intervening. So we really have to understand the feedback loops 
that exist and the interconnections between components in the system. You know, and I've talked a bit already about the transportation land use interaction. There's no use just building transit if the land use isn't appropriate. And so that's an example of a very key interaction and with feedback. But, you know, if you, you build the transportation system one way, the land use will respond. If you build land use one way, you know, transportation will respond over time, travel behavior will respond. So we really have to understand the dynamics of the system. So I think in the case of cities, part of the barrier to sustainability is just the sheer complexity of the system. There are so many moving parts, there are so many actors, each one of which has vested interests to try to align interests or understand how a policy may resonate with different stakeholders, perhaps in different ways, but will get their support is very important. So I think some of the barriers are, again, given the importance of the transportation land use interaction, it really means to get to a fundamentally sustainable city, and I would say a more equitable city as well, we really have to be changing that urban form that we talked about earlier, you know, that auto-oriented urban form in the suburbs needs to evolve to something that, that can be more sustainable. But the inertias there are very large. I mean, we've built a huge amount of urban and suburban space. It's not going to change overnight, you know, and people's tastes and preferences are not going to change overnight. It's easy to say, well, everybody should be walking and biking and nobody should be driving. Well, but the realities of where most people live, they have no choice. You know, the city of Toronto has come out with their climate change plan, Transform TO, and, you know, they're calling for by 2050 that 75% of all trips five kilometers or less made in the city should be made by walking and biking. Now, that sounds laudable, but is that accomplishable? I mean, is that something that will ever happen if we don't change the urban form? So, you know, I think there are inertias and rigidities. I've also talked a bit about politicization of transportation here. Politics are very important, and we have to think about the way we've organized our political systems, but even our more technical systems, the transportation department, the TTC, the planning department, how we've organized things, that organizational structure has a huge impact on even what questions are asked, what actions are possible to take, and so forth. Very often, we use zoning as a way of controlling land use, and that can be very proactive. It can actually impede doing things in places. So we have to be much more thoughtful about the institutional political barriers that are facing us. I think the real constraints are largely not technological. I mean, we always have technological challenges, but we're always improving technology. And I think we, to a large extent, understand what a more sustainable city would look like. So it's not, in some sense, a technical problem or not in the first order. It really is cultural and political and just the fact that we've been living this way for a long time, we're used to it, changing our habits is very challenging. Yeah, and that's where the title of the show comes in. I feel in over my head when I'm trying to, we're trying to save the planet. There's so much involved. Um, yeah, and that, that makes a lot of sense because those those cultural and political ideas, yeah, they don't change overnight and they don't change just because you have a, a Tesla that you can buy. So this show is about empowering citizens to to take action on climate change. From your perspective, is there anything that individuals can do to ensure that their cities are more environmentally friendly when it comes to transportation, given all the things we've talked about? 
Well, yes, I think there is. First of all, I mean, it's maybe trite to say, I think they can try to learn more about these issues and educate themselves. We all live in the city. Well, those of us who live in cities, we live in the city. We experience it day by day. And so to a certain extent, we think we understand transportation because we're traveling within it. But, you know, I don't want to sound patronizing, but many people really don't kind of know how the transit system works and why it is the way it is and these connections between greenhouse gases and our daily travel behaviors. So the better educated the public is, that's a starting point. And I think people like myself, academics and so forth, have a real role to play here to help with raising the kind of the uh, sustainability literacy, I guess, of people in some sense. I think second of all, part of empowerment is looking around at your daily life and saying, well, yes, I can't change everything and there's lots of constraints, but what are things I could be doing? Uh, maybe I could walk to the corner store instead of driving. Maybe I should think about taking transit to work, give it a try. You know, as you say, over in over your head, I mean, I think part of the, the climate change, sustainability problems, it, it just seems to be so hopeless uh, from a personal point of view. What can I do? Well, but I, I think it is incremental steps asking yourself, well, what could I do? I mean, I can recycle better. I can think about, you know, it's not just transportation. And we see people doing this, but I think that more people could be doing this. The third thing is pressing our politicians at all levels, but particularly local and provincial, to be better stewards of our system. Is the old adage, we get the politicians we deserve. And and I don't think we demand nearly enough of our politicians. Uh, we're far too willing to let them play the game of division. They can get away with just slick slogans and superficial promises. We don't force them to come to grips with real understanding of the problems and real solutions. Uh, we're, we're too willing to say, oh, don't raise taxes, don't do this. So as long as we're electing politicians who will dodge the problem and not do anything and kind of patronize us with political slogans rather than solutions, we're not going to get very far. So I think there's much more we can be doing to pushing people. But at the same time, I think the public has to be willing to accept the possibility of change. As human beings, we tend to be pretty conservative and risk averse by and large. So we always, I think generally, not everybody, but generally, we tend to underestimate the risk of the status quo, that we're comfortable with what we're doing and we don't see how that's destroying the planet of our current actions, that our current actions are not sustainable. And at the same time, we're very wary of change and overestimate the risk of change. You know, in talking about sustainability, uh, the status quo, the business as usual, is not sustainable. But are we willing to act on it? I think people have to be one way or the other, coming to grips with the notion, well, we probably do need a different future, but maybe it'll be different, but maybe it'll be better. And I think, you know, everybody has to be involved in that. Again, politicians should be helping with that conversation, academics, bloggers or, or podcasters. Yes, podcasters. <laughs> everybody, everybody has a role here. Yeah. I think also sort of associated with that, it's maybe not exactly the public, but I think they have a role, citizens groups or community groups and so forth. Look around your community and say, not just what can I individually do, you know, I'll recycle more or whatever, but as a community, what can we be doing even if the government isn't pushing it? Because I think the way the land use, for example, will change and travel behaviors associated will change and be able to have a better bus service is going to be piece by piece. Look for the low-hanging fruit. This neighborhood could really change if we wanted to make it change. Now, some of that has to, I think, a lot of that has to be coming from government, from the planning agencies and so forth. And so the suburbs, you know, are not going to change overnight. 
some of them are never going to change at all. How do we look for opportunities for change? And I think that's one way of breaking down this big, horrible problem. I mean, everything is connected to everything, but if we can take out a little piece and make a difference in that little piece, and then somebody else takes another little piece, and then there's another little piece, and before you know it, all of a sudden things are starting to look different kind of in, in larger areas, and you're gradually evolving. I mean, the city changes all the time. It changes slowly, but changes all the time. And it, but it changes bit by bit, right? You know, a building goes up here, the street gets changed. The city as a whole grows in bits and pieces. So can we be more intentional and thoughtful and impactful in terms of how we add new pieces and how we modify, change existing pieces? Breaking down the problem into more bite-sized pieces that are more within our control, either as individuals or a community or as a city, it will be the way we, we make progress, I think. No, that, that's very helpful for sure. And, and I, I really like your point about seeking out academics, much like the show is doing, but uh, seeking out academics and learning because I, the more that I'm learning from my guests and from the reading that I'm doing is that being as well-informed about the changes we're making is going to make the most effective change, I believe. So incremental change, I think, is the better way of thinking about things. You know, so it has to be, as I say, we have to understand, oh, this will make a difference, a small difference. But I talked about feedback loops. If neighborhood A becomes a little more mixed use, so you can walk to the corner store and there's a pub on the corner and a bit more employment, so there's more things you can do by walking and biking. It's more supportive of even just local transit services. Uh, it's changing the quality of life there. Uh, it's not just a little more sustainable, perhaps, but maybe it's a little better quality of life. And that neighborhood does it. And then maybe another neighborhood sees that and says, hey, you know, we can do something similar. And so you start to get these things where where it works building up over time. You're getting broader change going on and each change makes it easier for the next change, for the next neighborhood to do something. And at some point you get enough of this so maybe you can seriously think about really upgrading the transit now because you now have more density and traffic that's going to be generated within these communities. So new solutions, sort of higher levels solutions start to become more possible because you've built up from the ground up on this. I think it's a strategy worth thinking about. Oh, absolutely. And I do agree with you for sure. Obviously, that's, again, the point of the show is to empower citizens because together we can do more than, than you could on your own. So I think that's very helpful. So thank you so much for your time, Professor Miller. This has been very educational. Well, thank you. And, and thank you, Michael, for asking me. It's, it's been fun. I've enjoyed it. Well, that was my talk with Professor Miller. I really enjoyed how he broke down the way that cities are designed and that a lot of people don't even think about that. So I found that really interesting and how we can all get involved. Those incremental changes, education and talking to politicians and making our cities gradually more sustainable. Well, that's all for me. I'm Michael Bartz. Here's to feeling a little less in over our head when it comes to saving the planet. We'll see you again soon. In Over My Head was produced and hosted by Michael Bartz. Original theme song by Gabriel Thane. If you would like to get in touch with us, please email info at inovermyheadpodcast.com. Special thanks to Tell a Story Hive for making this show possible. I'm trying to save the planet. Oh, will someone please save me?